The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and welcome to The Exchange. We're off to a big start on this short week. Have you seen bond yields? Why are they up so much today if all the talk is about inflation peaking? Steve Leisman has that story for us. And if the Fed and other central banks can get less aggressive, does that clear the way for a rally in 2023? Meanwhile, China is easing COVID policies, even welcoming travelers as a way to boost its economy. We'll discuss the major ripple effects and whether that will stop inflation from falling further globally. And 2022 has been a sour year for Apple, falling more than 25 percent. But Citi has six reasons it could trade higher next year. That analyst joins us coming up. First, let's check on markets, though. And for that, we go to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob. Hello, Kelly, and Happy New Year. Well, the important thing about today is we have an unusual situation. The Dow's doing well. It's on the upside. S&P is not. And that's because you're getting a little help from the more defensive sectors. But that's been the story all year round. Show you that in the middle. S&P 500 down six points. To have the uh, the Santa Claus rally work, by the way, you have to stay over 38.22. That's where we were on Thursday. Seven days from there, if it's above that, that's considered a victory for the Santa Claus rally. NASDAQ's had a lot of trouble problems, mostly because of what Tesla had has been doing. I'll show you that in a minute. But here's the Dow leaders. And this has been the story all year round. What's working? Drugs are working. Pharmaceutical stocks, consumer staples like Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola, and energy stocks like Chevron. This is the story all year. They're called value stocks, folks, generally. Most of them are value. And they have been the big story this year in the Dow. And that's why the Dow has been outperforming everything else. And that's happening again. By the way, Merck's at a 52-week high. Even Caterpillar's at a 52-week high. New lows today, two big names you know and love. Tesla down again. Tesla's dragging the, S- the, the NASDAQ 100 down. Rivian's weak. we got all the big uh, EV makers that are week. And Apple just hit a 52-week low. That's a big story, of course. Uh, That's been avoiding 52-week lows, but not anymore. As far as where we go next, uh, semiconductors are having a problem. Now, there's two reasons semiconductors have been weak. One is the fallout from Micron's announcement last week about the high inventory levels. That's a read-through to the whole uh, industry overall. But the second big reason is what Kelly just mentioned to you a moment ago, and those those bond yields, because we were in a period where bond yields were descending for a while now. We were 4.3 to 3 four on the 10-year yield. Uh, and now it's been backing up again. We're right near 3.8% on the 10-year in the last couple of weeks. And Kelly, since that has been happening, since the 10-year yield has been rising in the middle of December, tech stocks have generally floundered, particularly those semiconductor stocks. You can overlay. You see that rally in the yield there? You could overlay that on the semiconductor index. And the index has been moving down as that 10-year yield has been moving up. Kelly, great, back to you. Great point. And Bob, thank you for highlighting Apple. I mean, another a 52-week low. It's not just a Tesla story. I mean, this. The, what do you make of that? Well, the important thing is 2022 in tech, in, in stocks, is about re-rating the future earnings potential of all of the big tech names. And it's not just Apple. Apple's only down 25%. You can go right down the list and look at all of the big names. Most of them are down 30 to 40 to 50%. That's the story. We are no longer being able to provide very, very high multiples to these companies because with interest rates this high, 
you competing against these companies and in many cases, a high interest rate, sure. uh, higher yields on, t on bonds are more attractive for, for other investors. So these companies are getting re-rated downward. The good news is value is really kind of back. I mean, we're going to talk about this all throughout the week, but it is very heartening to see consumer staples and utilities and healthcare stocks do fairly well this year, flat to even up on a number of names. And we'll, we'll show you that later in the week. All right. For now, Bob, thank you very much. Bob Bassani. So the conversation has inflation peaked globally. We are starting to see signs it's slowing in the U.S. and around the world. Let's bring in Steve Leisman with more on that story. Steve, what it'll mean for the Fed and the stock market. Kelly, uh, global food prices, interestingly, have fallen for the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, according to Morgan Stanley. And global energy prices have mostly been down and supply chains look to be clearing. The result of all this Falling overall inflation, not just in the U.S., but also globally. J.P. Morgan forecasting sharply lower inflation around the world and that central banks are going to follow that trend. They wrote in a report, our view that core inflation will continue to run at 0.2 to 0.3 percent at a month-on-month -month pace should allow most central banks to pause at the end of the first quarter of 2023, even as inflation remains above targets. And Goldman Sachs writing just yesterday, supply chain recovery and the deflationary impulse in the goods sector that it promised to bring took much longer than we expected, but have finally arrived. We expect this ongoing process to push core goods inflation negative next year. U.S. data Friday showed outright core goods deflation when you look at it by a three-month annualized basis calculated by RSM. But the core service sector, ex-housing, that's the one Fed Chair Jay Powell was focused on. It does remain sticky. You could see in that orange line right there. So whether that measure comes down is going to help figure out if the U.S. raises rates to 5% as priced in the market or higher and stays there for an extended period and whether it cuts next year, as the market also predicts. Here are the key risks to global inflation, volatile energy and food prices, along with higher wages that could pass through to consumer prices. That may be yet to come, Kelly. Steve, stay right there because we're actually getting some more bond news even as we're talking. And, and the, the 385 on the 10-year, we, we just have to come back to. But the two-year auction just went off. Let's bring in Rick for a moment with those results, Rick. Um, what is going on in bond yes. land? You know, in Bondland, we have a thin market. We have many of the sellers that were more aggressive have seemed to have disappeared. We see that the selling is much more intense than it has been, and yields are really popping in an environment that isn't high volume. This particular auction is exactly the opposite of that, though. Uh, Two-year notes, we just brought to market 42 billion of them, Kelly. The yield, 4.373, well below the when-issued market, which was making new high yields at 4.385 at the time the auction ended. So. This yield is lower, lower yield, higher price, A minus, an Apple minus for this auction. And to hit the highlights, well, the bid to cover 2.71 was the best since April of this year. Uh, indirects, indirects, and those are the ones that we really like to pay closest attention to, foreign buyers, the best since May of 22, and that was at 62.2. We were a little bit light on directs, hence an A minus. On the dealer side, they took exactly their 10 auction average at 19%. But to see that we're now fast approaching a 4.5% yield on a two-year, uh, you see the yield drop on the auction. That's because it was aggressive. If you open the chart up to early November, should we stay here, Kelly? It would be right. the highest yield close for a two-year since about the 14th of November. Tens are hovering near a one-month high close. It seems as though rates are on the move. That 3.5 to 3.42 in tens was very good support.
All right, Rick, stay there as well. So we've got Rick and Steve and Jeff Crumbleman is joining the conversation as well as we ask, how do you invest in this landscape? If inflation's cooling, it's starting to also create some discord within the Fed. We've got officials voicing different opinions about hikes and QT. But uh, my next guest says that is a positive catalyst for stocks. Uh, Jeff, it's great to have you. He's chief investment strategist and director of equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Um, what, what do you I mean, this this I, I don't mean to suck all the attention out of the room onto this one issue. But this this recent run up in bond yields, Jeff, is I'm, it's not just a one day thing anymore. And it's coming at precisely the time to Steve's reporting and, and the chat in the market as everyone's talking about inflation peaking and rolling over. So what do you make of it? Well, I actually think that we see signs that inflation is calming, and that, that is really the key that has to happen for the market to have some kind of sustained rally. And I, I'm actually um, uh, I get positively impressed with the composure of the bond market. And for those that want to get really crabby and think that we're going back to the 1970s, you know, the 10-year is below 4% at this point. And back in the 70s, the bond market was saying, hey, we need to be vigilantes here, and you really need to worry about inflation. And, and I think they're saying, we don't believe the Fed. Uh, we don't believe the Fed's going to jack these things up as, as high as you, you see in the headlines. And uh, actually, um, yields have, have held in very well, suggesting the bond market thinks inflation's going to calm, and the yeah. Fed's not going to have to jam it. So I, 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 what I see in the bond market overall exit a day like today um, is, is pretty uh, encouraging. No, I, I take your point. But Steve, I'm curious what you think as well. Why the last couple of weeks have we suddenly started to see bond yields creep back up again? Europe. <laughs> Rick says it's Europe. Steve, Boy, what do you I think? I want to hear what Rick has to say about this. I want to hear what Rick has to say about this. But I want to say uh, Lagarde went max hawkish. That's competition from European bonds. Uh, Japan widened the band on its 10-year uh, yield curve control. Um, and so there's competition from overseas, and I think you make a very interesting point. This is happening just as you get the sense that inflation is cooling, which tells you essentially, uh, Kelly, that it's uh, the bond yield is not strictly tied to the inflation outlook. In some ways, it's been uh, negatively correlated in the sense that the, the higher inflation went, the more people think thought the Fed was going to make a mistake, and you'd get this uh, 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 inversion out there. But right now, I think this the it, it's a resettling or, or a search for a new equilibrium between global bonds, which had previously been much more tied at the hip before the pandemic, and now I think they're getting re-correlated, if that's a word. Yeah, what, what would you add to that, Rick? And are we going to, you know, how much do we interpret any kind of December moves as as too much? But but when people are saying, ah, it's just a day or two, but Steve's right. I mean, things have change globally. Look at Europe. You look at Japan. I don't know. What about here? Oh, yes. And things had to change globally. Listen, Japan has gone decades with ultra low interest rates, managed markets, and many people think they've gotten away with it, but they haven't. If you've owned their stock market since 1989 when it peaked, you're hurting. Uh, you know, you could be long at just under 40,000. This is still well below 30,000. So there are issues here. And I think especially in the last week of the year, the shorts aren't going to defend the U.S. markets. I think uh, uh, we're going to continue to, uh, buyers aren't coming in. The shorts are going to continue to be aggressive in the market. Why? 
I think because of Europe, because of Japan, Steve nailed it. Those two issues change much of the dynamic. Remember, the, the more mopping up, the more QT that ultimately comes out of Lagarde, even though she has a multi-speed cure for what ails Europe, the, the more fungible quantitative tightening will be, and it will affect all economies. Yeah. I do think the U.S. is going to see buying coming in, but I think in this thin market for the rest of the year, I wouldn't at all be surprised to test 4% in a 10-year and 4.5% in a 2-year. Yeah, wow. All right, Jeff, let me bring it back to you. How did you guys perform in 2022, and where are you uh, looking for 2023? Well, we performed well because we had a high quality and a more defensive positioning. And we really warned clients and investors to brace for a 20% type of correction uh, going in. And we used the word correction because we didn't think it would last virtually all year, but we knew it would last you know, for a bit. And you know, our thought was if the last three years going into 2022, you are a 60-40 investor and the 26% annualized returns took you to 70% or more, hmm. you know what, don't be greedy, cut back to normal, rebalance, go back to 60% and kind of stay there and oh, by the way, don't buy on the dips. And we knew all these transitions were happening. But did we you didn't rebalance into bonds? Because that wouldn't have worked so well. Um, uh, uh, well, I tell you what, it does work. If you build adequate liquidity and you have cash and you have uh, an individual bond portfolio that's laddered out that sounds so boringly simple. Right. Um, it does, but it works. It's, it's an outstanding, elegant way to manage uh, risk in an environment like this. So we didn't lose money in bonds. Our clients didn't have to sell bonds like you do in a bond fund. You simply wait to collect your principal at the end and you earn your two, three, four percent that's advertised. Well, if I could put it more fairly, though, what you'd say is they didn't know they lost money in bonds, right? Because they weren't marked to market. When those are redeemed, they'll have their principal and their interest back, but they would have just, you know, they would have lost pace on inflation. Yeah, it will creep back to par and they're not going to sell that bond because they don't have to because we got plenty of cash to cover any needs that they have. So, you know, that, that was our thought. And the, the other thing that we did from the equity side was to be very balanced. And uh, we had a combination of offense and defense. And so we outperformed uh, on a relative basis handsomely in our internal strategies as a result of uh, that picture. And then certainly with our allocation by cutting back, that was additive too. So we feel pretty good. Yeah. 20, 2023, you know, the bears want to really focus on, oh, the next uh, shoe to drop is a decline in earnings, negative revision in earnings. Uh, that may be the case, but quite frankly, PEs and inflation are the key, and they can swamp trends in earnings. This was a year where earnings were positive, and the market anticipated a recession, and so it was a bad year. Right. Next year, earnings could be flat to negative, and it's a good year in the stock market. As long as inflation is coming in, you can get some multiple expansion, and we think it will be a very mild recession. So we now are beginning to build for positive returns as we move through 2023. Nice. And that makes Steve's story the perfect fit here. Steve and Rick, we appreciate your time. And Jeff, for those who are curious, we showed some of your picks on the screen. You're looking at bonds maybe a little bit here, small caps, 
some of the individual names, Eli Lilly, uh, we showed Starbucks, Deckers, T-Mobile and Communications and Technology, CrowdStrike and ServiceNow. So there, people can go do their homework while they're at home cleaning up with their families. Thanks all of you for your time today, Jeff Krempelman, Steve Leisman and Rick Santelli. Sticking with ways to position, let's turn now to a longstanding Wall Street year and tradition and look at the dogs of the Dow. Here's the strategy. Pick the five or ten highest dividend yielding Dow components and hold them for the next year. My next guest has a few picks for 2023, even though this trade... Correct me if I'm wrong, Carter, didn't work out so good in 2022. The current dogs include underperformers like Intel and Verizon. Uh, as an aggregate, they're down about 12% since January, while the Dow itself is down less than 9%. Carter Worth is here. He's founder and CIO of Worth Charting. But, Carter, I guess if we add dividends into that, is it almost just about even? Well, that's right. And it's a great follow-on to your conversation about yields. At the end of the day, we know that long-term investing, if you look at any long-term chart of the S&P or the Dow, versus a total return, um, half of your returns on any rolling two, three-year decade uh, process is from yield. And so the dogs of the Dow, while it's a sort of a clever name, and there's actually an index, if you can believe it, called MUT, M-U-T is the, is the ticker. Um, <laughs> it's basically making the case that it's not buying stocks that are actually dogs that are down. For instance, this year, Chevron is a dog of the Dow. It has one of the higher dividend yields, and it's up 46%. It's picking the 10 of the 30 Dow Jones Industrials with the highest dividend yield and then holding them for the year ahead. Um, Verizon, perchance, has the highest yield of all at uh, almost 7%. But two that are worth looking at here, to my mind, to my eye, Amgen and Cisco. And each, um, from a technical basis, is quite compelling. So and uh, they're very different circumstances. Amgen was a strong stock this year that's now uh, dipped. And I think you take advantage of that whereas Cisco uh, has been a weak stock that's bottoming. There's yeah. the engine chart now on the screen. And so you're talking about a breakout uh, to new all-time highs. Uh, that's a fairly rare thing right now going on the market. And now that check back, that dip, that pullback, that correction to support, I think that's a, an entry point, a viable moment. So by um, focusing by on... Yeah, uh, sorry, please. Carter, on Amgen and Cisco, does that mean you wouldn't recommend the strategy as a whole, buying all of them and holding that for this year? Would you say to say to investors, maybe just those two? No, I, I kind of like it. I mean, I think if we are in an environment where the markets are not inspiring to the upside, and I think that's that's a euphemism to say, I think we're either sideways <laughs> or down. <laughs> Let's just say that we're not so sanguine, all sorts of phrases one can use. I think yield will be important here. And so I would I would take a crack at the dogs of the Dow by owning the basket, but uh, two that come to mind, Amgen being one and then the other, uh, Cisco. And Cisco is a little bit different story. So final word there, because um, I don't want to waste your precious time talking about Tesla again, but wow. Is there anything to glean from the fact that Tesla and Apple, Apple's now hitting a 52-week low, as we, you know, speaking of the Dow, that one's probably a little bit more relevant. Do you think this trading action is emblematic of something? Is it just a year-end flush? Like, what's going on here? Oh, I don't. Well, each stock has got its own circumstance, but let's talk about those two. And Apple is uh, perhaps the most widely held of all. It is the largest cap, and it is uh, it is loved. And yet, it's 
day-to-day action couldn't be worse, right? It's right at its June low, and the presumption is it will break its June low, just as the stock market did and many stocks did. Tesla is an altogether different circumstance. You know, I, myself, we have reversed the longstanding short call and uh, taken a shot on the long side. It's not working as stocks getting hit today. It's is one of the most extreme readings. And what we do know is that even on the way to zero, whether you're Enron or WorldCom, you pick your, you get big bounces. And so while there's every possibility that Tesla can work a lot lower, we think it's very extreme reading and one can try to make some money on the long side. All right. And Apple? Oh, just free to move lower. Yeah. Okay. Free to move. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. I don't like that. You have an elegant way of conveying very bad information. Carter, it's, a, it's, really, it's great to have you here today. We Thank appreciate you. all your time. You. Carter Worth with Worth Charting. Still ahead, spending at restaurants surging this holiday season, but are higher prices simply to blame? Not so fast as one exec. We'll dig into the data coming up. But first, home prices cooling for the fourth straight month. Is it the beginning of the return to normal for the housing market? And if so, could there be a lot further to fall? As we head to break, here's a quick look back at the 10-year and all of the averages. The Dow is the only one positive up 114, 3.851. We're back in a moment. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. The latest Case-Shiller data showing home prices dropped half a percent in October. But that said, prices were still nearly 9% higher than the year before. Take a look at this chart. During, uh, dating back to March of 2020, the index level back then, 215. By this June, that's the peak there, it hit 308. Prices climbed 43%. We're only back down to a level of around 300. So how much further, if they will, Will prices drop? Let's dive in with Andy Walden, VP of Enterprise Research at Black Knight. Good to see you again, Andy. What do we glean from the latest decline? Yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhat to be expected, and I think we can add another month to that as well. We just released our Black Knight Home Price Index last week, and and we saw another month of declines in in November. And so I think that is going to be the continuing trend as we move into the the early part of next year, given where inventory is at and more more aptly given where uh, affordability is at at this point in the market. So maybe overall a 5, a 10, a 15, a 20% reset? I mean, as we just said, we'd still that would still leave us way above pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to trend downward into next year for sure, right? If you look at kind of the, the, the pace that we're on right now, we'll cross that 0% threshold right around April uh, of next year. And then from that point forward, it's, it's really dependent on a number of different factors, one being interest rates and the second one being inventory, right? That inventory continues to put upward pressure on prices and and will limit the amount of decline that we'll see out there in the market. 
it, limit the decline. And you and I have talked about this, how the housing market might be more in a freeze than falling off a cliff. Um, there's also been some questions, though, about whether the level of um, foreclosure activity picks up once some of these special pandemic programs. And could we start to see any pressure points there? Yeah, and I, not not in the near term, right? So if you look at serious delinquency rate and you look at foreclosure activity taking place in the market, foreclosure inflow is still below pre-pandemic levels. Active foreclosure inventory still uh, below pre-pandemic levels. Now you are starting to see some uptick in early payment defaults among uh, FHA type mortgages, which will make their way downstream in, into that pipeline as we move towards the tail end of next year. You've got some CARES Act provisions that expire as we move into 2022. And so I think the, the trajectory for foreclosures likely is, is on the rise here over the next couple of years, but not a massive explosion of foreclosure activity uh, that we saw last time around. We're just simply not in that type of environment. And we talk about pent-up demand, but demand is weak right now because people aren't really trying to buy. I mean, they're all watching prices. They're kind of waiting. They're watching rates. What would it take to really unlock a wave of demand? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. If you look at our Optimal Blue rate lock data, there were 50% fewer purchase mortgages locked in in November than there were at the same time last year. Simply put, mortgage purchase demand is down 50% from where it was last year. And then you look at where we lost that market, and it was right around the 5% uh, range in terms of 30-year uh, rates. And so I think you're going to see, I mean, we're, we're probably kind of bottoming out in terms of overall purchase demand out there in the market. But to really spur volumes out there, we're going to need to see interest rates certainly below where they are are right now. And unfortunately, they're kind of trending in the wrong direction. If you look at 10-year exactly. treasury yields over the last week, they suggest 30 rates may be pushing higher here uh, in the next week or two. So we're certainly moving in the wrong direction to, to spur any kind of increased demand. Yeah, you can imagine if that lasted as we start to head into the spring season, but we won't jump ahead too much. We'll leave it there for now, Andy. Thanks, <laughs> as always, for your time. You bet. Thank you. Andy Walden with Black Knight. Coming up, bright spots. The Wisdom Tree Cloud Computing ETF is down 10% this quarter, but not every stock is under pressure. We'll get some of the software standouts. First, though, check out this mystery chart down 42% this month. I bet you can guess it. We'll reveal it, but give more staggering stats next. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. We mentioned Apple at a 52-week low today. It's the worst performer in the Dow. Only seven names are actually negative. Verizon is the outperformer, up 2%. Caterpillar having a nice day. Chevron as well on some of those China reopening stories. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back, everybody. Dow remains the only of the major averages in the green, all the more impressive because Apple is the worst performer there today. But it's adding 100 points while the S&P is down a quarter percent and the Nasdaq down one percent. Again, the chips are a big head when they're once again. Want to do something a little different and drill down on one stock here today. We've got to talk about Tesla. This is another eight percent drop. We're trading at 113. It's a 52 week low and it's fallen for six straight trading days and nine out of the past 10. Now, 
The recent slide is after a Wall Street Journal report that Tesla will extend its work hold in Shanghai into January, which is something they haven't done in past years. It's raising some questions about demand. Zoom out. Tesla is down 42 percent this month. Worst month, quarter and year on record. No question. Look at this decline. It's basically a 45 degree angle. This after the automaker expanded discounts. CEO Elon Musk obviously sold a bunch more stock, $3.6 billion earlier this month. Tesla's market cap hit a peak of $1.2 trillion in January. It now sits at just above $350 billion, and its forward P.E. sits at 21 times. And on that note, we hand it to Christina Partsinevelis for a CNBC News update. Christina. Thank you, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. State and military police are being deployed to enforce a driving ban in Buffalo, New York, which has suffered its deadliest storm in decades. Across western New York, eight more storm-related deaths were reported today, and more snow is on the way. County officials are now warning about the risk of flooding later in the week when the, the feet of snow on the ground starts to melt. Some U.S. airports are having to set up overflow areas for luggage from the thousands of canceled flights over the long weekend. Take a look at this video that you're seeing on your screen. These are just some of the bags waiting to be reclaimed in Detroit and Chicago. Ooh. And one of the NFL's best defense players in, in the NFL history is calling it quits. Cardinals defenseman, defensive lineman, I should say, J.J. Watt, says this will be his last season. During his 12-year career, he was named Defensive Player of the Year three times, a feat matched by only two other players. Kelly? Wow. Wow. Christina, thank you. Christina Parsonevelis. Coming up, the Shanghai Composite climbing about a percent today after the Chinese government eased COVID controls even further. But while investors are bullish, one economist is warning China is shifting its economic strategy and the U.S. better be prepared. We'll talk about that next. Welcome back. China taking a big step towards reopening, dropping the mandatory quarantine for tourists visiting the country. It's got to be welcome news for the travel industry after nearly three years of being shut off to China. Seema Modi, speaking of traveling, the Globetrotter, Seema Modi, back here with more. Yeah, back from Asia, I got to see some of the recovery there, Kelly. But just to put this story into perspective, nearly two months ago, if you were a Chinese traveler returning to the mainland, you would have had to quarantine for about 14 to 21 days at a local hotel. If you were traveling across the mainland, you'd be subject to about three to four different COVID tests. So wow. the travel recovery in China has been severely impacted by the lockdown. And that's why the removal of this quarantine overnight is significant. And that's why you're seeing the market respond positively. Uh, but of course, it is a balancing act because they're reopening their economy at a time when COVID cases are continuing to rise on the ground in China, and that becomes a big concern. Economic pressure is certainly growing. China is likely going to miss that 5.5% GDP target that it set out uh, in January of 2022. We'll see if that target is revised for next year. Uh, but in terms of what it means for the travel industry, the biggest names that have exposure and the ones that could benefit, Marriott is really at the top of the list, Kelly. It has nearly 450 hotels across the mainland. It's been aggressively wow. expanding its footprint despite the lockdown over the last three years. Uh, same, similar story for Hyatt and uh, Hilton as well. Some of the online travel operators here, like Booking Holdings, Ctrip and Trip.com, that's the biggest online travel operator in China. They're also set to benefit, according to some of the analysts we spoke to this morning. Uh, but also retail, right? We're also talking about the Chinese traveler finally coming back to the United States. So and the retail, Europe, yep. Exactly. The retailers, the luxury players like LVMH and Caring that have been missing out on that Chinese traveler, at least in person, 
um, set to benefit as I, well. I mean, are people getting too excited about the impact? Because everywhere you turn now, they're going China, China to the rescue. China's going to save the world economy basically in 2022. No, it's a great point, especially when it comes to travel. Yes, some certain restrictions are easing, but at the same time, one thing I keep hearing about is the airlines they still have not increased capacity. Hmm. So if you want to see travel pick up, you got to give me more options, right? If I'm a Chinese traveler, I want to be given different itineraries to, to choose from, especially if you're coming from America as well. We have not seen that airline capacity improve just yet. When it does, maybe uh, we'll see those forecasts increase as It's well. a great point. Always comes back to the airlines, doesn't it? Always. <laughs> These My days. Seema, thank you very much, Seema Modi. So when can we expect a serious big-time comeback for China? My next guest says possibly this spring, like in March. But the contraction between now and then could still be stark. And China's whole economic strategy, meanwhile, is shifting. Let's bring in Derek Scissors, American Enterprise Institute's Asia economist. It's great to see you again, Derek. Welcome. Thank you. So why do you say, first of all, it could get worse before it gets better for China? Well, it's in the process of getting worse now. Um, COVID, you know, zero COVID was a problem and, and COVID is actually a bigger problem, which is why China had zero COVID for a long time. Uh, people are saying, hey, I think COVID is going to peak in Beijing and Shanghai in early January. But Beijing and Shanghai are not China. Uh, it's, there's still plenty of COVID spread left in cities around the country and then in urban air and sorry, in rural areas. Uh, after that. So we have at least two more months of, of bad economics where work is interrupted. Uh, the retail you're talking about in China, you know, doesn't work because people don't want to go to stores. Then we should see a very sharp recovery. But it's, it's, it's several months away countrywide. Wow. So a lot of people might be getting ahead of themselves then if they're thinking, hey, you know, or maybe not. If you say, well, the stocks are pricing and what's going to happen in three months time, maybe they're fine to be rallying now on this. What do you say? Well, it depends on what you think the base is here. Uh, if you if you just want to rally, okay, there's going to be improvement in everybody's prospects roughly in March. It's going to last for about a year, so that's great. But where are you starting from? Um, you know, uh, you just guys, you guys just talked about a 5.5 percent target for 2022. They'll be lucky if it's 2.5 wow. percent. Um, the first quarter next year is going to be bad, whatever China reports, even though it'll be getting better by the end. So there's a, you know, if you think you're climbing out of a two-foot hole, then great. That's one way to, to play stocks. But if you're climbing out of a 10-foot hole, uh, maybe that improvement doesn't really help you until well into 2023. Very interesting. And what's the larger shift that you think is at play here? Well, I think we've had a number of blows to China as a manufacturing and export powerhouse. I mean, they're the premier manufacturer and the premier exporter in the world. So, so they have, they've built up a lot of credibility and a lot of advantages. One of the blows is going all the way back to 2019. Xi Jinping gets mad at his own private sector. Then we have zero COVID. Now we have the Chinese healthcare system creaking. All of these, these things are, are what foreign firms, at least, and maybe some Chinese firms are looking at saying, I need to diversify out of China. So the battle the Chinese are going to have is they want control of those supply chains. They want to be the top of the food chain in manufacturing. This is the first time in a while their position has been threatened. They still have some advantages, but we've seen multiple blows to their position in the last three years. What should the U.S. do in response to that, do you think? Well, I think there's an opportunity here for the kind of diversification out of China that we want economically, politically, militarily. Uh, and we have to play that right. We have to decide, first of all, what are our priorities? What industries do we want to attract out of China? We've taken a step to that with regard to semiconductors and the Chips and Science Act, which passed Congress earlier this year. 
um, we have to decide where are our other priorities. Is it rare earths? Is it batteries? You know, is it pharmaceuticals, which is where I would put the priority? Hmm. And then the next step is we have to decide, do we want this stuff to come back here? Or is it okay to be made in North America? Is it okay to be made in Australia or, or someplace else uh, that we consider a friendly country? So there's an opportunity here for the United States, and we have, to, we have to pick our priorities and who we want to come along with us. Sure, and maybe what we've done on semiconductors is a template of, of a lot more of those kinds of actions. Derek, for now, thanks. It's always good to uh, hear from you. We appreciate it. Good to see you. Derek Scissors with AEI. Coming up, the consumer appetite, new data on where Americans were spending their cash this holiday season. That's next on The Exchange, back in two. Welcome back. The results are in. MasterCard's holiday spending pulse. Now, it showed experiences won out big time over stuff this year. We did see an increase overall, at least for holiday spending. But the jump in restaurants, that's getting the headlines. Pippa Stevens is here now with the details. Wow. That I, wow is right, Kelly. Consumers are still eating out. Between November 1 and December 24th, restaurant spending was 15% higher than last year, according to MasterCard. That's partly because of the post-COVID mindset. Here's how MasterCard's C. Steve Sadov explained it on Squawk Box this morning. I think that you have a consumer that is right now trying to be very experiential. You look at the restaurants, use your example, at a 15% growth, uh, there's clearly unit volume growth on top of the inflation. Uh, you try to get into a restaurant in New York, for example, and it's uh, it's pretty tough. So there is real demand going on in the restaurant sector. One thing driving that demand is restaurants are a better deal these days because grocery prices have risen faster than restaurant prices. November's CPI report showed restaurant prices up 8.5 percent year over year, while supermarket prices were up 12 percent. This has been going on all year. And according to Kalinowski Equity Research, restaurants market share relative to grocery stores hit a record 55.3 percent in November. Despite this, restaurant stocks are mixed for 2022 as the industry faces challenges around labor and commodity costs. Names like Chipotle, Starbucks and Domino's all in the red this year. McDonald's is flat, while stocks like restaurant brands and Texas Roadhouse are in the green. From personal experience, Kelly, I am certainly contributing to that spending. You're doing your channel checks. That's exactly. what we call it. Exactly. I'm shocked that restaurants have been underperforming on inflation and stealing share from grocery because... I just feel like that's about to change. The labor piece of this is not going anywhere. The commodity piece, as you know better than anybody, probably is going to look a little better in 2023. Mm -hmm. Was this just a one-time splurge, you think, or, or could it be a lasting trend? I mean, I definitely think coming out of the pandemic, everyone was really prioritizing those in-person experiences. They wanted to see friends. What better place to do that than when eating out? But we are starting to see some traffic numbers dip. I remember, a lot of the restaurant gain is also because they've raised prices. So we also have to factor in the traffic numbers here. And particularly with the lower income consumer, we've seen them start to pull back. Mm -hmm. And so if things get, you know, if we head into a recession next year and people cut back a lot more, this will certainly be one area where we could see, you know, consumers start to move down the food chain or maybe even start to look more for the value at the grocery store. So Great strong point. for now, but we will see. Who would have thought that it would be the Christmas of going out to eat at a restaurant, but well, we'll take it. Pippa, thank you very much. Pippa Stevens. Still ahead, six geese laying was so last weekend. City now has six reasons why Apple will trade higher next year after a pretty dismal 2022. Can they stay bullish even after today's trading action? We'll talk to the analyst after the break. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a rough year for Apple. The shares are now down 27% nearly as higher rates wreak havoc across tech. But City's Jim Suva is saying 2023 could be a turnaround. Here are six reasons why, plus his bonus option about why the stock could move higher. One, potential growth in India. There you go. The contrarian view, by the way, that iPhone revenue growth will not decline next year. That's number two. An expected boost in services revenue, thanks in part to easing foreign exchange headwinds. Number four, the launch of the Apple AR or VR headset. That's my personal favorite catalyst. Number five, regulation remains a headline instead of a real risk. Number six, buybacks, dividends, and a flight to quality. The bonus, which Steve and I promised not to talk about, <laughs> is the long-term possibility of an Apple car. Joining us now, Jim Suva, a senior tech analyst at City, and our own Steve Kovac is here as well. Is, are we getting the headset this year, Jim? I think we will get it in the second half of the year, Kelly. Not just because it's your favorite, but simply because <laughs> the world really needs it. When you think about all the pilots that need to be trained, all the education, the doctors, and a lot of the AR kits, meaning the um, augmented reality kit and the software has been built out, where you can now put on these goggles and have a great experience. So we do expect it to happen, likely in the second half of the year, but there are absolutely a lot of new products in the work. And then eventually a foldable phone for the following year, oh. 2024. So I know you like AR, VR right now, Kelly, but in the future, I bet we're going to be talking about that foldable phone. Uh, so on the top screen, you can be watching CNBC. And on the bottom screen, you can be looking at all your emails. I was, Steve, eyeing. There were some ads for that during, I don't know, some football game from who's the competitors that are making Samsung it now. Makes yes, the big one, yes. Yeah. And I thought, well, I don't know if, that, if, if I trust them, but if Apple did it, I probably would. Let me ask you this, Steve Kovac. Which of these do you think the investment community is most excited about that could be a genuine catalyst for Apple next year after what's been a really tough slog? Yeah, so I'm looking at the services side. So I'm looking at their ambitions in fintech, uh, the buy now, pay later product launching. They're launching a what they call a, quote, high yield checking account that's they tied are. to the Apple card. They announced that a couple months ago, and it's going to launch most likely next year. Good so, time to be in that space. Exactly. Uh, with interest rates as the way they are. They haven't said what the yield is yet because of interest rates, but it, high yield, whatever that means. Yeah. Uh, so fintech is super interesting there. And then uh, how they get around or keep the app store growing amid these regulatory threats in Europe, amid regulatory threats here in the United States, and then just this overall decline we're seeing in app spending, especially gaming. I wonder, Jim, if one of the, the real reasons on your list should have been something like interest rates decline, because is Apple just a macro trade right now? It's, it's hard to see how it's not. Well, first of all, Steve mentioned some brilliant things about fintech and their credit card and their business that they're doing, and they're very much disrupting the industry. But right now, consumers are having to recalibrate their entire household discretionary income and what they're spending whether it be food, gasoline, rent, things are very expensive. Let alone right now, people can't get from New York to San Francisco. The uh, is really facing a lot of challenges with weather. That is slowing down units and hurting Apple near term. That's why when we look ahead to 2023, Kelly, I'm right on the same page with Steve about his disruptive uh, discussion about FinTech and services, we're on alignment with that. We think 2023 becomes a much better year, especially after people recalibrate to this newer, higher interest rate uh, environment that we're living and in. And look at, Steve, there's Apple below 130. Yeah. So is there any fundamental 
reason or justification. This is the worst stock in the Dow today. Right. It's on 2% or 1.5. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about the year that it's had. What's going on? Any, anybody know? This, what we've been seeing all year, though, there's no good theory, but what we have been seeing, it's the leader. It's the loss leader for the market. So it, as that goes, then everyone kind of follows. And then it, we saw that this summer when it started peaking up again. So, And then everyone followed it, too. So maybe that's an indication of how things are going to look early next year. I did want to talk really quick about the sure. AR headset. Sure, though, that, as long that as it's not was, the car. It's not the car. It's not the car. <laughs> but the headset... What's really interesting, what we saw what Meta did this year with their headset really failed to show a use case for it. And what Jim described is great, enterprise stuff, you know, going on warehouse floors, Microsoft is working on similar things, but no one has come up with that killer use case that, oh my God, I have to run out and buy it. When we saw the iPhone for the first time, it was so cool. You had to run out and go buy it. The watch, run out and go buy it. AirPods, run out and go buy it. What is the run out and go buy it feature for the headset? No one has really articulated that. And if Apple can't articulate it, this thing could be really dangerous for them. It's, it's a great it's point. Hard. Jim, and I'll give you a final word on this as well. And do you stick with your 175 price target even after an end of the year like they're having? Kelly, we do. Right now, you can't even get out of your house to drive into a Manhattan store or in Buffalo where a lot of the roads are closed down. So we do expect the December quarter to be challenged. That's going to help out next year. The demand is still there. And when we look ahead, whether it be item number one, two, three, four, five, or six, the things that you laid out that we are positive about, we're still sticking with our buy rating and our target price. We think that people will revisit the strength. They have a tremendous amount of cash flow, and they're going to be buying back stock. And as the year progresses, we expect more and more positive things to come, not just from AirPods, AirTags, (laughs) when your luggage gets lost in the wrong airports. Uh, There's lots of business case uses, and we're looking forward to a more healthy and fruitful year of 2023. Well, we appreciate you joining us from the family Christmas tree, Jim, uh, even even if the connection was in and out. Jim Suba with City and Steve Arbor, thanks to you as well as always. Steve Kovac. Coming up, the cloud computing ETF has lost half its value, having its worst year ever, but it hasn't been bleak for every name in the space. We'll reveal on the other side of this break. Don't go anywhere. One more thing before we go, everybody. Got to talk about the cloud stocks. For instance, the WCLD cloud computing ETF down 10% this quarter. Not great, but it's not the whole story either. There are some clear winners and losers in the space. Frank Holland is breaking it down for us. Hi, Frank. Where are there, Kelly? You know, cloud enterprise and cybersecurity stocks, they've underperformed big tech. If you look at the triple Q NASDAQ ETF as a benchmark in Q4, these stocks just weighed down by elevated valuations, interest rate pressure, and the rising dollar. However, that dollar pressure has eased up significantly. The dollar has fallen 8% to the yen, and the euro has risen 8% to the dollar. That's why you're seeing that crisscross. That's the way these things are measured. Cutting the dollar's year-to-date strength in relation to those currencies basically in half. And globally, there's been a really positive tailwind for the transition to the cloud. Spending has leveled off from the first half of the year, as you can see, but every month more than 20% year-over-year growth. Companies that issued some bullish signals about their business, they've been rewarded. SAP, a German cloud provider, forecasting as much as 26% growth in cloud revenues. You can see their shares up 27% in Q4. Okta, a cybersecurity player, especially in multi-factor authentication, it raises billings guidance up as well. Box, a cloud storage company, raising EPS guidance and showing margin expansion. You see shares are up 26% in Q4. However, high valuation names or stocks that are not seen as mission critical under pressure in Q4. Let's start off with Snowflake. Classic case, trading at more than 500 times forward earnings, shares down almost 20% in Q4. 
Palantir, high valuation, and a bit of a complicated business that relies on government contracts. Analysts telling me the unexpected inclusion of Oracle in that $9 billion Pentagon contract just creates more questions about government contracting that even Palantir is called lumpy. And Asana, project management stock that faces really stiff competition from a lot of mega cap tech players, including Microsoft and Salesforce. However, M&A, that may be the big story for these stocks in 2023. New data from Prequin. Private equity has $941 billion in dry powder, up 14% year over year. So a lot of money to spend on companies most recently. We saw yeah. Coupa acquired by Toma Bravo. A big valuation reset this year. Frank, thank you, Frank thank Holland. You. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 